0: In our previous episode, I attempted to redeem Hernan Cortes by demonizing the Aztecs for their religiously motivated history of human sacrifice. Passing judgment regarding the actions of individuals from different eras can be exceptionally challenging. After all, we've grown up in different circumstances and are ourselves held to far different standards. The BBC attempted to wade into this debate in 2013, reminding its audience that Immanuel Kant, one of the most influential philosophers of the 18th century, stated that women should leave reasoning to men, and they are not fit for serious employment. Does such a backwards, boneheaded opinion invalidate all of the other deep thoughts of Kant? Does it mean that his rules for happiness – have something to do, someone to love, and something to be hopeful for – are suddenly invalid? Defenders would say that despite being enlightened, Kant would have only been exposed to women who hadn't practiced expressing reason publicly, as was frowned upon for a proper lady. He wouldn't have had exposure to evidence that ran counter to his thoughts except that he did. In fact, one of his closest friends even published a book on the need for the emancipation of women. Exposure was possible, but Kant ignored the issue. In fact, a magazine devoted to Kant points out that whenever women wanted to debate him on the French Revolution, he'd refuse and change the subject to recipes and cooking. It turns out that we can judge individuals from the past. In fact, that article's title was Kant was a sexist and we need to deal with that. We can't avoid criticizing people just because our inputs are different than theirs, because even with our modern day inputs, humans in our era regularly repeat the mistakes of the bygone past. Clearly, we aren't perfect which means that we will also be judged wrongly by those in the future. Whether it is for general continued intolerance to minority communities, our inability to alter our nation's laws in response to repeated gun violence at schools, or perhaps because we consume animals. You might say that that last one is a little ridiculous, but now that the United States and Singapore have approved lab-cultivated meat for consumption, One can imagine PETA having the last laugh regarding the billions of animals on our planet that are literally born for the purpose of dying. It's difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of history's questionable characters. After all, we want to be transported back with our own set of inputs. Rather than learning in school that slavery is horrendous, you would have been taught that it was the natural order of things. Rather than being introduced to diverse individuals with differing opinions, you would have been surrounded with individuals who espouse the same viewpoints. Still, there are some individuals who stand out for judgment. Men and women who should have known even then that their actions were wrong. Intelligent men like Immanuel Kant, who could have listened to those around him that his thoughts on women were already antiquated. One possible title for this episode, then, would be that Hernan Cortez was evil, and we need to deal with that. Stanford professor emeritus Philip Zimbardo wrote an article titled, The Psychology of Evil. In it, he attempts to apply what he refers to as the Lucifer effect to the prison guards who physically and psychologically tortured Iraqis during the Second Gulf War. Lucifer, of course, is the biblical figure who gradually transforms from one of God's top angelic agents to a rival for the celestial throne. His coup attempt resulted in him being shunned from heaven, resulting in the creation of hell a prison designed to contain his evil influence once and for all. The Lucifer Effect describes how one falls from grace, transitioning from good to evil, from one who judges others to one who is judged by others. Zimbardo's prestigious life work zeroes in on one key factor, power. He informs us that evil is the exercise of power, and that's the key. It's about power. To intentionally harm people psychologically, to hurt people physically, to destroy people mortally or ideas, and to commit crimes against humanity. And that is what the actions of Cortez and his conquistadors amount to. Unspeakable crimes against humanity. Their horses, guns, germs, and steel made them virtually invincible, and their physical distance from civilization made them anonymous, allowing them to believe that they would be the authors of their own story. That anonymity is far from a benefit, as anthropologist John Watson found that 90% of military groups that mask their identities are significantly more likely to kill, torture, and mutilate their opponents. In other words, they are more likely to commit evil acts. The conquistadors are certainly guilty of that in the Americas, and thus deserving of our judgment. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the new world conquests of the conquistador Hernán Cortez. Episode number three, Gold Fever. At this point in our story, Hernan Cortes had already overcome a number of major challenges. He had conquered the linguistic barrier by taking as his loyal mistress Marina, more commonly referred to in Mexico today as La Meliche. He had been gifted large sums of gold from envoys of the Aztec King Montezuma II, and thus didn't need to worry that his mission was all for naught. Alliances which he had formed with alienated local tribes had him pointed in the right direction. One problem remained, and it was a big one. How could he conquer the most powerful military in North America with just a few hundred Spaniards? The answer to that question came easy to the conquistadors that came later, particularly Francisco Pizarro, who felled the Incan Empire for they merely followed the playbook set up by Cortez. For our main character, however, the future was unknown, but he began to formulate an answer on his way to Tenochilan. The key came in the form of adding local muscle to that of his own meager forces. His first opportunity came while visiting with the chief of the Totonacs, who just happened to have been visited at that precise moment by envoys of the Aztecs demanding victims for sacrifice to their gods. Historian Frederick Ober describes the scene for us, writing that, when Cortez learned from the cringing Totonacs that the Aztecs had come to demand victims for sacrifice, he affected the greatest indignation, and ordered them to place those proud nobles in chains. At first the Totonacs were horrified, but on reflection, knowing that Cortes was armed with the powers of the thunder and the lightning, and that he could slay thousands at a stroke, they reluctantly complied. They were amazed at their own audacity, knowing well that now they had committed the deed that would bring upon their heads the direst punishment unless protected by their newfound friends. But unbeknownst to the Totonacs was the fact that the Conquistador was playing a double game. For the Spaniards had not permanently locked up Montezuma's tribute collectors. Instead, they had them ferried out in the middle of the night, set them free with messages that they were the ones who had courageously rescued them from the treachery of the Totonacs. Keeping the double cross secret, Cortez continued to promise friendship and protection to the local chief, resulting in the offering of the chief's own niece as a token of friendship, along with seven others that are described by the Spanish warriors as damsels. Ober, a Spaniard writing the early 1900s, doesn't mince words when he explains that Cortez's actions at rejecting the gifts wasn't due to loyalty regarding the wife that he had left behind in Cuba, which is how Cortez wrote the exchange up, but rather his refusal was because the women were, quote, gross and unattractive. Confident in their alliance, the Spaniards destroyed the local idols that adorned the spiritual temples. The local priests put up a fight which caused the Spaniards to brandish their swords, but the vast majority of Totonacs remained in awe of their guests and came to accept the forced adoption of Christianity. Within days of casting down their idols, the Spaniards were teaching candle-making so that the local inhabitants could properly pray to the Virgin Mary. Now, with a foothold in the new land, Cortes began to put his grand strategy into effect. He gave more than the fifth that was demanded of the Aztec tribute gold he had received to a crew of fifteen loyalists, who were sent home to Spain on his finest ship. Once there, they were ordered to sing the praises of Cortes to the court. The hope was that his loyalists would successfully lay the groundwork for their leader to be named the governor of Mexico once the conquest was completed. They were given explicit orders to be on the lookout for messengers from the governor of Cuba, whom Cortes had previously double-crossed. Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, was indeed still holding a grudge against his former protege and had ships off the Yucatan coast specifically looking for any vessel that could be connected to Cortez. But his forces came up empty-handed. Next, Cortez had his remaining men begin to establish a fortress from which to rule the land. Showcasing the conquistadors' violent nature, the first two structures finished were a jail and a gallows tree. But the Spaniards were restless, and after putting down a weak attempt at mutiny, Cortes decided to march on to Nochitlan before the final structure was complete. The Totonacs donated a number of warriors and 2,000 men to carry their supplies. The warlike nature of the invaders was on full display as they cut a straight path towards the Aztecs, leaving behind no foes which could kindle a fire in the rear. When presented with a fork in the road, he followed the advice of his allies and proceeded into the territory of the Tlaxans, a people whom they were currently at peace with. Despite having translators available, Cortes sent ahead an unreadable message written in Spanish, along with a crimson cap, a sword, and a crossbow. The indigenous governing council didn't need to read the words on parchment to understand what was headed their way. Their own messengers and spies had seen firsthand what the Spanish had done during their march inland. Most of the council expressed fear, even wondering aloud if the Spaniard war leader was the returned god of Quetzalcoatl. The commander in chief of the armies, however, was not impressed, reportedly telling the others, say rather they are monsters cast up from the sea, because it could not endure them in its waters. These are not gods who so greedily covet gold and carnal pleasures, and he wrongs the honor of this republic who says it can be overcome by a mere handful of base adventurers. Let me have my way with them first. If they are mortal, the arms of the Talaskans will proclaim it all around. And if immortal, there will yet be time to allay their anger by homage and implore their mercy. The Talaxan general won the argument, and the Spaniards were attacked soon after crossing into the new territory. Two Spanish horses were killed in the engagement, an incredible loss for the Europeans, and a massive morale boost for their enemies, who came to realize that the beasts were in fact mortal night ended the engagement, allowing Cortez's men time to regroup. It was the first time that the Spanish had been given a reason to pause as they survived that night off the meat of local dogs. The ferocity of the Tlaxon assault had left them in such a state that they were forced to sleep with their weapons in their hands. When the sun rose, the 500 Spaniards awoke to see an army of 50,000 awaiting them in the distance different cultures aren't weird. They may do things that appear weird to others, but always act in accordance with their own beliefs. In this instance, the Talaxans sent their terrified enemies 200 baskets of cassava cakes and 300 turkeys. Starving, the Spaniards dug into the feast, but were rudely interrupted by the thundering charge of their enemy. 2,000 men had been sent against them. Ober writes that the gunners were driven from the artillery so closely pressed the throngs of the savages, wielding their ponderous swords and lances amid flights of triple-pointed darts and flint-tipped arrows that darkened the sky. The battle raged for hours, the carnage in the Talaxan ranks was awful, but all day long the Indians stood their ground, retiring only at the approach of night. How many Talascans fell that day is not known, but despite the overwhelming odds, only two Spaniards were killed, though seventy were wounded. The foes returned to the fight, preceded by flights of darts and arrows, with war cries and shrill yells filling the air, swords and lances gleaming. They hurled themselves against the Spanish phalanx, but were repulsed again and again, leaving thousands of dead and wounded on the field. The war chief consulted his astrologers and was told that he could not conquer the strangers by day since they were children of the sun, with whose going their own strength waned. Consequently, his only hope for victory lay in a night attack. This he promptly made, but with most disastrous results, for Cortez had his cavalry in readiness— and not only repulsed the Indians, but pursued them by moonlight through the cornfields, affecting great slaughter. Historian Frank McLynn writes that this was the hardest-fought battle the Conquistadors had experienced yet, and it continued into the second day. It was probably only the artillery that turned the tide, as the Tlaxans, like other local tribes, fought only to capture enemies, not to kill Moreover, the historian writes, they fought in an absurdly wasteful way, a head-on combat in which only the front rank engaged at one time. When this was annihilated, the second rank moved up, and so on. If this were how all Indians fought, Cortes concluded his task would be simple, for Toledo steel was clearly superior to the obsidian swords in hand-to-hand combat, and his artillery could blast great holes in the packed masses of warriors awaiting their turn in the front line. We might look back at these actions with astonishment, judging them with the gift of 20-20 hindsight. But just as it was common to send food to the enemy on the eve of battle, these methods were the norm in the region, and since they had always worked in the past, the assumption was that they would continue to work against the pale forces that they fought now. Once it had become clear that the Spanish couldn't be defeated, the Governing Council abruptly made peace with the Conquistadors, offering to become their loyal allies against the despised Aztecs. The Spaniards spent the next twenty days recuperating in the capital of Tlaxcala, While his men were busy entertaining themselves with the hospitality of local women, Cortez devoured the locals' knowledge regarding Tenochtitlan and its defenses. Although he spoke of them regarding the righteousness of Christianity, he didn't topple the Talaxian idols. Instead, his men respected the local religion, as he believed that he had finally found an ally strong enough to take on Montezuma. The Aztecs were, of course, fully aware of the Spaniards' unrelenting march towards them, but Montezuma continually hesitated. Twice during this time period, he sent the Spaniards gifts of gold, imploring them to take what had been freely given to them and leave for their distant shores. Each gift, however, only served to convince Cortes that Montezuma's gold reserves were inexhaustible drawing him like a moth to a flame. His next major stop was Chulua, a holy city that was said to have been made up of 20,000 houses and 400 temples. His new allies warned him away from the place, but Cortez trusted Montezuma's envoys, who privately suggested that the Aztec king would be willing to meet the Spaniards there. Marina, his mistress and translator, received a warning that an ambush had been planned. Seeking to save her, the Aztec emissaries told her to take cover in the night and to stay hidden. What they didn't realize, however, was that La Malinche had fully thrown her lot in with the Spaniards. She immediately warned her lover of the treachery that had been planned, rather than retreat and reassess the conquistador decided to spring the trap. McLinn tells us that what happened next cannot be reconstructed in detail since the sources are confused and contradictory. Either there was a genuine plot by the Choluans to massacre the newcomers, or Cortes persuaded himself that there was. In any event, he invited the Choluan aristocrats to assemble in the temple courtyard for a grand conference then sealed all exits and unleashed his warriors to massacre them. Their blood up with the original slaughter, the Spanish then cut loose on a general orgy of mayhem. Their Totolnec and Tlaxine allies joined in, sacking the city so thoroughly that it took them two days to exhaust their homicidal impulses. Ober picks up for us what happened after Cortez managed to block the exit gate for the city, writing that the bloodthirsty soldiers fell upon the defenseless throng like wolves upon a flock of lambs. Mingled with the roar of cannon and musketry were the death shrieks of men, women, and children murdered by the thousand. Blood ran in streams, the dead were piled high in heaps, and such unfortunate survivors were burned alive. The hopeless Chiluans died to the last man atop the stairs of their great temple devoted to Quetzalcoatl. Even their possession of the high ground could not halt the advance of what appeared to be the invincible men in steel. Montezuma's envoys were witness to the massacre and returned to their liege carrying the repeated desire for an invitation to the capital city. The ruler of the Aztecs was said to have visibly trembled upon his throne as the details of the sacking of the holy city were relayed to him. Delaying once again, he said that within a fortnight he would have enough food to finally allow the Spaniards to visit Tenochtitlan, which now lay a mere fifty miles from his position. Buoyed by their success, the Totolnax were dismissed, but Cortes kept his Talaxian allies close to him. Coming upon another forked road with one side blocked, the Spaniards removed the blockage and continued on, assuming that another trap had been set up along the cleared road. Montezuma had a body double meet with Cortes, but the ruse was quickly uncovered, and the conquistadors continued their inexorable march towards the heart of the empire. Gold continued to find its way into their pockets, as the Aztecs incorrectly assumed that their enemies' thirst for riches could be satiated. It is believed that the total amount of bribes totaled more than 36 million in today's dollars. Laden down with loot, the Spaniards carried on in their never-ending quest for more their prior victories and the intelligence that they had received from allies confirmed their military superiority to the aztecs this advanced scouting made all of the difference as cortez had come to understand that his enemy fought exclusively to wound rather than kill the aztec superiority over the local tribes had granted them a false sense of security while their need to continually secure sacrifices to their gods had resulted in training which exclusively emphasized the need to not bleed out their opponents. After short stops at two small cities, the Conquistadors and their allies reached the capital city by crossing the Tenochtitlan Crossway on November 8 seven months after they had arrived from Cuba. Ober notes that the causeway connecting Itzlapia with the capital was six miles in length and eight yards in breadth. It ran straight as an arrow's flight to the great city's central square. About a mile from the southern shore, the causeway was joined by another, and at their juncture stood a small but very strong stone fort, with walls ten feet high to the battlements, and surrounded with a moat crossed by drawbridges. All three causeways, in fact, were frequently cut by broad canals or ditches, spanned by wooden bridges, which could be raised at will, and thus, for a time at least, prevent the advance or retreat of an enemy so rash as to venture upon those narrow structures of stone, amid the waters. One of the Spanish chroniclers on the expedition noted that it was like an enchanted vision from the tale of Amadis. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked if it was not all a dream. It was all so wonderful that I do not know how to describe this first glimpse of things never heard of, seen, or dreamed before. Cortes described it in writing to Charles V, stating that the principal streets are very wide and very straight. Some of these, all the smaller streets, are made as to one half of earth, while the other is a canal by which the Indians travel in boats, and all these streets from one end of the town to the other are opened in such a way that the water can completely cross them. All these openings, and some are very wide, are spanned by bridges made of very solid and well-worked beams, so that across many of them ten horsemen can ride abreast. Montezuma had a palace in the town of such a kind and so marvelous that it seems to me almost impossible to describe its beauty and magnificence. I will say no more than that we have nothing like it in Spain." It would have been impossible for the Spaniards to have not known that they were entering a dangerous situation. The sudden appearance of more than 1,000 warriors on canoes made it crystal clear to them that they were unwelcome guests. Ober writes that the brave commander's eagle glance took in waters on either side of him alive with Indian canoes, A fortified city in front of them, and their retreat cut off by the gaps of open water that the raising of the bridges would reveal. But nevertheless he still advanced, compelled by a soldier's pride, perhaps also by a holy zeal for his conversion of the Mexicans. Led by him, forced to act against their own judgment by him, the army took the road for the capital. Hernán Cortés dismounted off of his horse upon the arrival of Emperor Montezuma. The two met as equals, which was to the surprise of all whom had gathered. Ober describes the Aztec leader for us as "...about forty years of age, tall and spare, with a coppery complexion and sparse beard. His eyes were dark and melancholy, his hair black and coarse, worn long and flowing." His head was adorned with a rude tiara of gold and a panache of green plumes, the insignia of his military rank. His embroidered Aztec cloak was trimmed with pearls, as also were his bushskins or sandals, the soles of which were of gold. The precious metal was everywhere, not only on his royal person, but on the litter in which he arrived with pillars plated with gold and feathered canopy. Stopped by guards midway through an attempt to reach out and hug the emperor, Cortez, ever the cheap showman, presented Montezuma with a necklace of fake pearls and diamonds. The trinkets were met with a gift from the Aztecs of two very real pearl necklaces. The Spaniards then proceeded to follow the great emperor of the Mexica to one of his many palaces. There, against the expressed desires of his closest council, the emperor bid them to rest and relax as though the palace were their own home. The first thing the Spaniards did was to fire off a round of their cannons. They claimed it was to honor their guests, but as you might have guessed, it was to demonstrate their ability to control thunder in order to cow any opposition to their arrival. Ober tells us that the roar of the cannon reverberating through the streets and squares served the purpose intended by Cortes, and was sufficiently terrifying to the astonished Aztecs. Never before in the two hundred years of its existence had the Aztec city heard such sounds nor had it ever before been invaded by soldiers in armor, bearing weapons that evoked the thunder and the lightning. The next day, Cortes put on his ambassador's hat, sitting beside the emperor in order to inform him all about the greatness of Spain. From this meeting came the long-standing rumor that Montezuma believed that the man he was talking to was some sort of representative of the gods perhaps even Quetzalcoatl in the form of a pale warrior. The assumption had previously been made by the other tribes that they had encountered, and this time Hernan played up the connection, confirming the false rumors of his own divinity. Simultaneously, he continued his relentless attempt to convert the emperor to Christianity, who appeared more than willing to accept Jesus into the pantheon of the many gods which they already worshipped. The first meeting concluded with a few million dollars' worth of gold going the Spaniards' way. Everything about the experience awed the visitors. They described the emperor as both generous and friendly. They were amazed by his palace, which contained more than 100 rooms as well as three courtyards. A score of chefs were on hand to make sure that every need of the emperor was met, and accordingly were said to have been able to prepare any dish in at least thirty ways. More than three hundred dinner options were placed atop his personal dining room table, and four beautiful women held the bowl of fresh water which was presented for Montezuma to wash his hands. For days Cortes visited the main sites of the capital before sitting nightly besides Montezuma, sipping chocolate and smoking tobacco together after shared meals. The Aztecs didn't hold anything back from the Spaniards, and thus Cortes came upon the burial sites of the victims of the continuous sacrifices to their gods. It was told to him that one particular pit contained an absurd 136,000 skulls. Like Cortez and Lucifer, the Aztecs had power and chose to utilize it for evil. But Cortez held his tongue as he was taken to each temple in order to be introduced to the many gods of the Aztecs. Ober tells us of his visit to the capital's primary temple atop which was a pan of incense, with three human hearts burning as an offering. Near him stood another hideous idol, Tetzkulopoku, or the god of the infernal regions, with a countenance like a bear and a great shining eyes of the polished obsidian substance whereof their mirrors are made. Great idols overlooked the sacrificial stone, nine feet in diameter, three feet in height with a sculptured border of conquering kings. This stone had a deep bowl in its center, with a channel leading from it to the edge, through which flowed the blood of the victims. It was upon this stone that the high priests of Montezuma's slaughterhouse threw the human victims selected for sacrifice. Then with knives of obsidian cut open their breasts, and then tore out their hearts, which they offered to those great stone idols looking on in grim approval. More than 60,000 victims were sacrificed here in a single year, tradition relates, and for how many years no chronicle can tell. Montezuma misread the room here, however, resulting in Cortez finally losing his temper, shouting at his indigenous counterpart that he could not understand how a monarch so wise as you are can worship as gods these abominable figures of the devil. His disgust resulted in the Spaniards being escorted back to their palatial quarters while Montezuma remained behind in an attempt to appease the gods, which likely means that all Cortez's complaints did was get some poor man or woman executed. Wanting to establish their own faith within the city, the Spaniards next asked for permission to build a small chapel for their own god, a request that was happily granted. Soon local workmen arrived in order to transform a small apartment based upon their design requests. It was here that one of the greatest mistakes in history was made. While Cortez's men were banging the walls in search for a stud upon which to hang the heavy crucifix, they stumbled upon a secret passageway. We don't know for certain whether Montezuma merely assumed the Spaniards wouldn't find it, or whether he had so much treasure that he had forgotten where the entrance was. But the passageway led directly to one of the greatest treasure houses in the world. One conquistador wrote, that we saw riches without end, and I thought that if all the treasures of the earth had been brought into one place, they could not have amounted to so much. The Spaniards didn't immediately seize it, but Cortes did tell his officers how it would eventually be split, giving one-fifth of what at the time was believed to have been worth six million to the king, and merely the equivalent of what was $1,000 to the infantrymen who had already risked their lives multiple times for their commanding officer. It is worth noting here that it was discovered afterwards that Hernan Cortez massively cheated his men out of riches, regularly hiding the hull's true value from them so that he could skim massive amounts off the top for his own pockets. His men were eager to be away with the treasure hoard. But Cortes had great plans in mind, hoping to seize the governorship of the Spanish colony for himself. In his estimation, the capital city and its many palaces seemed to be more than suitable for him to rule from. But after touring the capital, he could not wrap his head around how the conquest of 300,000 could be accomplished by less than 7,000. Restless nights spent trying to unlock this Gordian knot resulted in the hatching of what turned out to be a horrific idea as Cortez finally settled upon a plan to kidnap Montezuma. It was an evil act by an evil man, Montezuma hated the Spaniards, but had shown them every ounce of hospitality available to him. His troops had not attempted to ambush Cortez's men, and no location within the city had been made off limits to the invaders. Continuously, the conquistadors had been showered with exquisite gifts. Having been given no justification for violence, Cortez reached into the past in order to spin a narrative that would justify his actions. He decided at this moment to inform his men of the death of seven Spaniards, whom he had left to guard a garrison. He conveniently left out the fact that the deaths had come weeks before the conquistadors had arrived into Nochuitlan. Now at a public meeting, the Spanish charged the Aztecs with the murder of Juan de Escalante, one of the garrison members who had been decapitated in the fulfillment of a religious ceremony. Upon hearing the accusation, Montezuma demanded that the killer be brought to him, hoping against hope to resolve the impasse via the justice system. It wasn't enough for Cortez, who claimed that the only way that the Spanish could feel safe would be if Montezuma traveled with them to one of their fortifications. The Aztec emperor immediately understood the implications inherent to the request, reportedly asking, When was there ever an instance of a king, a great ruler like myself, tamely suffering himself to be led into prison? And though I were willing to debase myself in so vile a manner, would not all my vassals at once arm themselves to set me free? The commander attempted to lie to him. But one of his men, Juan Velasquez de León, lost his temper and shouted, Why waste so many words on this barbarian? Let him at this moment yield himself a prisoner or we will plunge our swords into his body. Montezuma didn't need a translator to understand the man's desperate tone. And in order to avoid bloodshed, he relented to becoming the Spanish's prisoner. Ober writes that, the news of the emperor's departure spread rapidly, and there was danger of an immediate uprising of the Mexicans, which was averted by Montezuma himself, who caused it to be proclaimed that he went with the Spaniards of his own free will. Entering his litter with royal state attended by the nobles of his court, but closely guarded by the iron-willed conquerors, the emperor departed from his palace, which he was never again to enter alive. McLynn notes that the kidnapping of Montezuma was one of the turning points in the conquest of Mexico, and possibly the most important single event. What it illustrated, apart from the deadly ruthlessness of Cortes, was the superiority of the European Renaissance culture to that of the Aztec. Montezuma should have resisted and died a martyr's death, which would have inflamed the Mexica against the interlopers they would surely never have escaped alive. But Montezuma's mindset was blinkered. He had never been confronted by a situation like this, which to him was inconceivable and simply lacked the imagination and mental resources to think his way out of it. Instead of taking up arms when they heard of his abduction, the Aztecs lapsed into sullen apathy and listlessness. Their culture stifled initiative, being a traditional, rule-based society. There was no precedent for the kidnap of a ruler, continues the historian. There was nothing about it in their book of rules, so they reacted with inertia. Cortez, on the other hand, was imbued with the Renaissance ethos that boldness always won great prizes. The fact that he was willing to take such a brazen action came from his spoken belief that whoever does not enter by the front door is a thief and a robber. By legally seizing the emperor, he falsely believed that he was able to maintain the moral high ground. He now had the emperor as well as access to his vast vault of treasure. But Cortez wasn't done yet. In our next episode, we will discuss the Conquistadors' attempt to take the city of Tenochtitlan itself. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to contact the show, email us at resourcesbylowry@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, spreading the word, and supporting the show.